the reason I'm bringing that story up is because it was, it was, it was something that connected my intellect to my faith in such mm. a powerful and visceral way that there is a reason for the faith that we have. Now, I may not be able to understand all the reasons. I might not be able to articulate the answers to everybody's liking to a skeptic or a critic or whatever the case may be. But if you get down to the to contemplate, put the freaking phone down and think, look at the stars at night and think, how were you created? So there's a very concerning trend going on of Christians who are doing this thing called deconstruction, which, uh, as we discussed offline, is kind of an age-old thing that that people do. Um, I think it's become a little bit more trendy nowadays with the advent of social media, and uh, people are pretty quick to jump on. It seems uh, to social media and and you know post their questions, which kind of on the surface seem like pretty pretty good questions, right? But then you you apply a little bit of thought to it and 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 you're like wait a second that that doesn't pass the smell test so um instead of uh hopping on and and asking those almost rhetorical questions I uh, figured I I would hop on and 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 uh ask the questions that I think that they want to ask themselves but maybe can't formulate or can't uh don't don't want the answers to but you know <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would like the answers to those questions. So, um, and kind of getting into it, uh, I was reading recently that there's a, a Lifeway study that got put out that said that 66% of teenagers who previously attended a Protestant church before college or before the age of 18 stop going regularly for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22, which is when a lot of them are either going out to college or, you know, are moving out of the, their parents' house or whatever. So, um, I was, I was wondering if maybe you could touch on your personal journey. Um, maybe tell us a a little bit about who you are and, um, we'll go from there. Yeah. So, um, I'm Alan Plummer. Um, I work in technology, been doing technology for quite some time. Um, but as far as a faith journey, uh, some of the things that you said in the intro there kind of resonates with me. Um, I remember these were things that, um, I recall, uh, older people, older generations than me when I was in that age bracket, having similar concerns. Um, and so you're, you're completely right in saying there's nothing new under the sun. Um, it may be called deconstruction these days, but in the end, you know, whether, and you, and you did say um christians um doing deconstruction and and i would i would submit that that may be a, a to be a little pedantic it may not be christians actually doing deconstruction but those that were raised in a church setting um perhaps identifying as christians but um in essence not theologically um born again so um sure that that's that's one aspect of it and certainly another aspect of it is christians actually seeking uh, a reason for their faith so i don't want to you know group everyone in the same thing but 
you know, I started, uh, I guess my life, um, growing up in the church, uh, as well. Um, I wasn't in a theologically sound home or anything necessarily. It was just, uh, we, we kind of did our church thing, came home and ate lunch, uh, every single Sunday. Um, you know, so I, I don't remember any, um, um, focus on talking about God or talking about Jesus in the home outside of the church setting. So I, I, I guess you could say it was a pretty normal, nominal Protestant upbringing, especially in the South and the Bible Belt. Um, I did have a, uh, I think my grandfather, my great grandfather had died. Um, and so I was thinking of things about death and, you know, when you're six, seven, eight years old, you start thinking like, oh, okay, the heartbeat stops and there's this reality of this thing called death. And like most, you know, young elementary school kids, that, that just terrifies you. And so like, you don't know what to do about that. Like, how do you, how do you come to grips with that? And being in a church, um, going home, you know, I was familiar with seeing people baptized and, and this was in a kind of a Southern Baptist persuasion. Um, it, it's actually in South Louisiana, um, as well. So, uh, which was interesting because mo that's mostly a Catholic and non-Protestant area growing up at sure. any rate. Um, I remember, um, being very, uh, one night just not being able to, um, I guess go to sleep and, and I felt this deep, you know, needing to get right with God at seven years old seven or eight, somewhere in there. And, um, shortly after, you know, I, I remember asking my dad at the time, like, how do you know, how do you know that you need to be baptized? I think that was the way I phrased it. Or how do you know that you're saved? I may have said it that way, but I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would have known that language, um, that way. And I remember him saying, Oh, you'll know when you know. And I remember like thinking, what in the world does that mean? Um, like, how do you, right. how do you, and you're seven or eight years old, you like literally don't like know how to process that. And so, um, at some point I knew that I knew, um, and wanted to be baptized, whatever that means. And so, um, I was baptized, uh, at that age and went on in my life. Um, now, you know, lived the same way, always lived, um, always kind of sorrowful for doing wrong things or whatever. I mean, regretful and stuff. So people, you know, remorse, like, and, and whether it's remorse of being caught or whether it's remorse and feeling bad that you may have hurt somebody else, I don't know. Um, but I don't think it was an offense before God, uh, kind of remorse, if that makes sense. Um, so I just clocked along. And uh, most of my high school time was spent um, doing anything and everything but uh, thinking about the things of God and um, going to college. Uh, I actually went to basic training in the Army and then went to college and same thing, um, majored in in uh, things I probably shouldn't have majored in and should have majored on my studies kind of thing. Um, but uh met my wife, your mom, um, back then in the fall of nineteen ninety one. Um, in the fall of nineteen ninety one. And um and I remember I re I remember saying when when we first met, I remember saying like um like Jesus in a in a uh 
profane way or in a blasphemous way. And when I say blasphemous, I'm not getting into theology here. I'm just saying in a way that's um, uh, taking his name in vain. And if that makes sense. And so as a, almost like as a, as a swear word or something. An epithet, right? So like, this was like stub my toe and there's, you know, there's his name coming Mm -hmm. out and, and those other things. And I remember your mom, like, you know, even at that time, she was like, okay, I, I can deal with, you know, MF this and all these other ones, but I can't deal with that. And like, mm. so you're going to have to stop that. So I remember that being kind of cleaned up from my language, um, pretty, pretty early on in our relationship. And, um, and, you know, fast forward, um, you know, uh, in the spring of 92, uh, we were engaged, um, she became pregnant and we were fast, fast, you know, fast forward, we're married. Right. Um, and, and that, in that vein, I remember, I remember her coming to me and, and this is what I, I guess the phase that I would call the promise. She, she said, you know, whatever, whatever happens, I want my children to grow up in the church. Mm. Um, and I didn't like know what that meant, like really sure. other than the context of what I grew up in. So I was like, sure, you know, whatever. And, um, so, you know, we get off into the military and things like that. And it's interesting how God places people in your life and you look back on it, you know, 20, 30 years later. And I remember this guy, it was, a, it was an IRS man. I was in, I was doing payroll at the time. So literally a biblical thing, a tax collector is, mm-hmm. you know, telling me about the love of Christ. And I remember this and, and, and I remember being as profane as I possibly could in, in that setting and, you know, just trying to be and so when you think about deconstruction and you think about like what you're seeing these days on social media and stuff we didn't have social media in the early 90s but frankly that the 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 behavior was the same regardless of what label you want to put on it um i I would have probably been the worst of the worst in that kind of setting if i had the the social media there um because i remember like actually saying profane things or or questioning things and 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 doing things in a way that's provocative purposely provocative to this man and uh and others that i knew that that were of the faith and i remember this guy uh and it stopped me if you want me to stop but no, i'll, I'll keep going keep going I, so i remember this guy his uh and i won't say his name but he uh he came to me and, it, and we kind of grew close, you know, just digging foxholes and doing the things that you do in the army and stuff like that. And, uh, he had a, he had a wife and small kids, I had a wife and a kid and, uh, uh, at the time. And, uh, that was your older sister. And, um, and I remember, um, him coming to me with this deep, like profound concern. And, uh, and he, and he came up to me, he said, you're a believer, you're a Christian. So I need to ask you a question that's really important. And I remember thinking, okay, like, what's this guy think that I'm a believer? <laughs> and I, and right. at the time, at the time I, I had been baptized as a kid. I, and, you know, so like at the time, I guess I could have like put my, like my dog tags literally said Baptist, I think. So like, it, wow. but like in, in all essence of the word, I was agnostic than anything mm-hmm. else. So, um, and so I'll get into that in a minute, but, but this guy came to me, he says, I, I got a deep, like soul filled question. I'm like, well, what is it? You know, he go, and we're just cleaning our M16s, you know, in the middle of the night and, uh, about to turn them in after a field exercise. He goes, I sold my soul to the devil. 
And I looked at him, I'm like, say what? You know, I, I t- it goes, I was at a bingo hall like 10 Stop. years earlier. I'm serious. 10 years earlier. And there was this huge jackpot. It was like 10 or $20,000. And he said, I was in a bad way. And I just, I said, like, basically promised the devil if he would win this, he would forever be his to do whatever. And he literally won that jackpot. Oh and, my. And so he had been like bearing this this weight for years and decided to like come talk to me about that. And like I'm not equipped to talk about that at all. And probably still yeah. not. I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, um, but it was it was I remember I remember people approaching me like that, like the tax man, like this guy that sold his soul to the devil. And it turns out this guy that sold his soul to the devil actually like is a like at least outwardly a strong believer. And so he's worked out whatever it is that he worked out. I have no idea. Wow. I, I just know that um, after being in the military, I actually met up with him uh, actually on a, on a phone call. And this is before internet, uh, the internet, like web conferencing stuff became popular. And he was like, you know, going to church and, you know, was a leader in the church and all these other things. So this was years after this sell your soul to the devil. So I'm telling that story for several reasons. One, the fact that like people looked at me, even as an agnostic, assuming that I was in the faith, but I literally was not in the faith at that point. Mm. So that's one thing. Uh, second thing is, is that there are things that people go through in life that think they may think that um, they've done something too bad. Like this guy, like he thought he like sold his soul to the devil. Now, somehow he worked it all out, but like at some point he got to the conviction that God can redeem anyone. Mm. So, um, and so that, that's the second reason of bringing that up. And so we actually started trying to go to church to that promise that I was talking about and, and whatnot, and never really, you know, uh, did. Uh, so I wasn't really living up to the promise that I promised your mom back then. And fast forward to, I guess it was 19. So 1997, I got out of the military and I got back into college and went back to school. Uh, part of what I did was uh, getting a bachelor of science in computer science. But a lot of my coursework is around hard sciences, physics, um, biology, um, uh, calculus, discrete math, and all of those things. And one of the classes was astronomy. And so it was... Uh, I guess 99 to 2000, I, I graduated in 2000, May. And uh, so 99 was when God started actually doing a work in my life, like to tr- start drawing me towards him. And I, I didn't know what it was at the time. Your mom brought me out to this um, this play at a, at a church near where we were living at the time in Louisiana. And, and it was a play. So like for me, I like your mom knew what she was doing. She, she knew that I wouldn't probably darken the doors of a church in a regular setting, but like, you know, listen to some preacher preach about something, right. you, you know, that no one believes in anyway. Right. Um, right. cause I certainly didn't. And, and I remember this, there's a scene in this play where the actor who was acting as, as Jesus, like, is like, you know, uh, like kind of going through the, the aisles or whatever to go to the cross or whatever. And, um, and then the other actors are acting as townspeople and they're like spitting on them and like, you know, kind of pretending like they're hitting him and like he's falling down and all this other stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, 
like that, like this righteous indignation rising up within me. I'm like, who are you to, to do that to Jesus? And I remember like that night and shortly after that, it was like the Holy Spirit was like showing me that scene over and over again, like saying, this is you mm. doing this over and over again to Jesus. And so I remember thinking to myself, oh, golly, what, 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 what's going on here? So I, I started reading the Bible. And this is before the Internet, again, was super popular. It's 99. So it was it was around. But I remember this thing came on the TV and, and it was like a it was a, a book for free or whatever. It was just like testimony book or whatever. And I ordered it because it was free and I was poor. And uh, <laughs> being a being a, a college student with a couple of kids and, and working is it, it kind of humbles you, you know, as far as those kinds of things. So it was it was free to me. So it came in the mail and I read this thing. And the first testimony on the front end was about this guy who ran across a passage in in Matthew at seven, chapter seven, verse 21. And it, and it says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And and I remember, and it's a famous passage, you know, it, it's from the, it's from the Sermon on the Mount and, and Jesus is talking and, and he says, many will come on the, come to me on that day. Hmm. And they will come to me and say, didn't we do this in your name and that in your name? And he says, depart from me. And I remember thinking to myself, this is, this is the most offensive passage in all of the scriptures that I've ever encountered, you know, thus hmm. far and really kind of still. Um, because people are thinking they're right with God. Yeah. They think they're smart. They think they got it figured out. They think they got everything figured out. But God just looks at them and says, I never knew you. Like what? So I started down this journey for several months. Like, what in the world does this knew you mean? Like, no. What does this know? This, 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 this intimate knowledge of. And I remember scripture right like from like the the kids stories of of garden of eden and stuff so i picked up the bible i'm reading through genesis and reading about the cool of the day and the the fig leaves that they adam and eve cover themselves with and then the and then afterwards right after after becoming a believer and and, and many years of of like just entrenched in this faith I see now back then about how God's in, in the Methodists call it prevenient grace, right? How God's prevenient grace was drawing me unto himself, right? And so the Methodists call it prevenient grace because it's the grace that comes before. And it's hmm. a different grace than justifying grace. And so um, I, I'm more of a, the Reformed persuasion. So it's not, it's not something that a lot of Reformed people hear uh, a lot, but uh, when you think about the wooing and 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 how Jesus says that no one can come to the Father except um, that He's drawn, that this drawing happens, right? Like this, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and le uh, heavy laden. All of these drawing aspects of of uh, how Jesus draws people to Himself, it, it's much more rich than this transactional, like pray a prayer mm. and and this is how you get saved. It's more of a there's a deepness that that literally the echoes of the imprint of the divine on man's soul is drawing man to to God. Like that, mm. this is why we were created in the image of God, the Imago Deo. This is the the image and imprint of the eternity that is built into the hearts of men that that draw us to Christ. And 
it's not something that you can do a two plus two equals four mathematical thing because literally God takes a dead man and he makes him live. And so I, I know this now, but back then it was through several months of going through this. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I need to be baptized again because, you know, the Baptists say that baptism is a, is a, um, is a proof of a work that's already happened. Um, it's an ordinance. It's, it's not a, it's not a sacrament. In other words, it's not a grace giving thing, but it's a, it's an ordinance that shows that, that something has happened. And, and, and a lot of times as, as, uh, Baptists do when they, get right with God or they become saved or they, but all of the buzzwords, I want to try to make it as um, generic as I can without like loading it down with the buzzwords. But those words are important. Dead things came to life. Um, so generally Baptists will, will say that, you know, you, you need to be baptized on the other side of that. So I was struggling with that. I was like, okay, do I need to get baptized again? Blah, blah, blah. And, and I was asking people at work, like, Hey, you go to church, right? And Church of Christ guy. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, do I need to get baptized? And, you know, if you know anything about Church of Christ, they'd be like, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, because in the Church of Christ, their theology is, that, and this is why they evangelize like at prisons and whatnot with the tank to, to mm. do immersion right there on the spot. Because when someone decides for Christ, it's not effectual until they are baptized. That's their belief. So I'm sitting there asking that guy this and, and he's like, yeah, I think so. I guess so. You want to talk to somebody, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I, I, you know, at, and, and it was January, it was January timeframe, I think in 2000 when I was, I was like reading the scripture and, and came across that set, chapter seven passage again, uh, going through the sermon on the Mount. And I'm just like searching like this was what nowadays when people flip and scroll and doom scroll and things like that, when they're bored, searching for things, we didn't have mobile phones back then. So it was like you either had to like get on the dial up and like dial up and hear the screeching modem and then like and then doom scroll on some text based thing. Like so it was just it was actually easier just to open the book and read mm -hmm. the scriptures. Right. And so. I remember that that weight of that passage, seven twenty one, came down on me like a like a load of bricks, and and I fell on my face, and I just said, "You don't know me," and um, you know, I used words that like along the lines of you would hear people say when they give an invitation, you know, "I give myself to you." I'm sorry for my set. What what had happened was I realized how deeply offensive I was and the stench I was before a holy God. And um and then shortly after that I was baptized and, and I started growing. Uh what was interesting about this and uh, about this chapter in my life, right after this, um I, I had taken an astronomy class because I had to take a um I had to take an elective, a science elective, and this was the last semester for my degree. And so I took an astronomy class and I enjoyed it. Uh, but the it was this a uh, book super thick and it started from the it started from like current day and going backwards in time so you know so it's like looking at galaxies and looking at ages of stars and bright line spectrum and heavy element stars and then extrapolating the fact that these lighter weight stars that had lighter elements in them like helium and and hydrogen and whatnot as they went supernova and fused together they formed new material that became stars and heavier weights and blah, blah, blah. 
And I remember like as a new Christian, like, I mean, I'm months into my faith at this point and just been baptized. I'm excited. I'm ready to get to the like origin of the, of the universe. Like, I, like, and so this book's like leading to the origin of the universe. And it's a physics instructor that I had in physics. That's actually teaching this class. And we get down, it's the last week of class and we get down to the red giants, the supernovas and 14 billion years old at the time. I think now they say it's 16, but, but he goes, you might, and he wrote this down, he goes, 10 to the minus 43 seconds. We know what happened to 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Now, if you don't know what number, I know you do, but like for the listeners here, 0. 0.0 and like 41 zeros and then four, three, like 10 to the minus 43 seconds. That's about as fraction of a fraction of a fraction that you're going to get. It's faster than, it's probably, it's probably, I don't know, 20,000 or 200,000 times faster than blinking of an eye down to that part of a fraction infinitesimal time frame. He says, we can go down to that point knowing that, you know, matter can neither be created nor destroyed. And wow. that's the, the, the part of that. And so this energy burst came from a piece of matter, like down to 10 to the minus 43 seconds. And some, some people call it the big bang. And, and uh, you may ask yourself, class, what came prior to 10 to the minus 43 seconds? And I'm on the edge of my seat. Right? I'm like, it's an easy answer. Like, it's a totally easy answer. Like, ex nihilo, right? Mm-hmm. God created from nothing. Like, yep. so he stands outside of creation. So, like, he, there is a maker that came before this big bang. We can argue the time frame all, all day long, whatever. But there is somebody that made that. There is an action outside of the created order of being that we have that An made uncaused it, cause. It, yes. It's ex nihilo. It came out of nothing. And so mm. like, I'm sitting there like grinning. I'm just ready, ready, ready. Like, what's he going to say? He goes, some say it's supernatural. I'm like, what a crock. What a crock. All, all of this, all of this science, all of this that we have, this big, thick book of, of astronomy, of galaxies, of how these things were created, how these things were fused together, all of this stuff. And I'm not, I'm not saying any of that's bunk. I'm saying that those are, those are real scientific things, right, that, that God has done in the order of his creation. But you get down to the 10 to the minus 43 seconds, and you realize as a physicist, you have to violate physics. To mm -hmm. to explain that, and so so I'm encouraged. The reason I'm bringing that story up is because it was it was it was something that connected my intellect to my faith in such mm. a powerful and visceral way that there is a reason for the faith that we have. Now I may not be able to understand all the reasons. I might not be able to articulate the answers to everybody's liking to a skeptic or a critic or whatever the case may be, but. If you get down to the to contemplate, put the freaking phone down and think, look at the stars at night and think, how were you created? Hmm. When you get down and deeply meditate on that, and that's what I think this generation misses, is the power to think like that without the the um, the dings on the phone and the and Amen. the likes and things like that. And so so. 
anyway, and, and I grew, I grew in that. So I, I don't want to belabor this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking a long intro here on my personal journey, but like, I, I really want to connect the dots of like, this is not a, this is not a baseless faith. There is mystery here. Um, mm -hmm. God is described in the scriptures as, as the whisper, um, as the whisper that, that couldn't be seen. He's also described as an all-consuming fire. Um, I, I mean, like there, there's so many references to the way that God is portrayed in the scriptures that are so mysterious, that are so out there and mind-bending that, that it, it's hard to put that in a box. I remember as I grew in my faith, um, I started teaching and, and things like that. And so I, I got, into, got into learning the scriptures for myself and um, all of that. I'm, I'm not a scholar or anything like that, so I don't purport to be. But um, I remember coming across several different key things in my journey that God proveniently put there and, 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 and just providentially put there. Um, like there, there was, a, there was a, uh, a church in Shreveport called Springs of Grace that did a, um, that did a uh, series called Cultural Christianity in the 90s. And he had a bunch of tapes on this. And this was a popular thing, but it was a popular thing upon, among like reform circles and, um, and, and, uh, and other, um, other Christian circles. But it was, it was really an indictment on the lovey feely aspect of the view of God. And, and what the, it, I mean, I'm going to sum it up, sum up like 12 tapes series and like six months worth of sermons into this one little capstone thing. And that is that there's only if you think if you think of all the attributes of God as a spokes on a tire or spokes on a bicycle wheel, the, the preacher like introduced this as, as as this illustration. He said, what is the centermost piece? What's the hub in which all of the other attributes uh, emit from? And um, and I remember thinking, OK, is it love? Is it mercy? Is it forgiveness? Is it justice? Is it righteousness? Is it and all these things are kind of interwoven, right? And he, and he makes the case that it's holiness. And then he defines what holiness is. We think of holiness in our English American brains. We think whole in Western brains, holiness is some, some dude in a, in a, you know, in a sackcloth robe or something that's like, you know, burning incense or whatever. And, um, but truly the word holy means set apart. Like literally it means set apart. And so when you go back and connect it to the beginning, when I was talking about that ex nihilo out of nothing, God created things. This is the thing that is the core attribute of who God is and all of the other attributes emit from. And if you don't start there, I'm convinced that you're going to have deconstruction and you're going to have people questioning and you're going to have, you have to start with the fact that God is not like you and he's not like me. Like he literally is not like us, but yet in many ways he is like us. And this mm. is why Jesus was both man and God divine. Like the, the, so there's a logical construct here that if one will just see it, you could see the logical construct all through the scripture. Well, gee, the Old Testament God seemed to be acting a lot different, killing people and stuff. And the New Testament God, he's talking about like love, law, lovey-dovey and stuff. And I remember going through this, like, like after I came to faith, I remember like, yeah, man, I, I sure like reading the New Testament over the Old Testament because the Old Testament, <laughs> you don't really know what to do with, right? But, right. But we start with, we start with our own brain and we start 
we we start out in a selfish way in a I don't want to say selfish that's probably too harsh of a term. We start out in a way that only we like know how to bring. So we're we're stepping in the shoes of God and purporting that God somehow thinks like we do in that way. So ideas of fairness, ideas of um happiness being our end goal or those kinds of things is what are generally what we come to God with and try to explain things like the Old Testament God that that told the Israelites to kill women and children. Um those are hard things. I don't pretend to say that they're not, but when we try to put our brain, our brain, our human brain that's finite into that, we're coming with all the wrong motives, all the wrong. We're looking for an out. We're looking for a corner. We're looking for, we're looking for some excuse. We're looking for something. We just need to be satisfied with the fact that God is God and we are not. Mm. There are things that are just hard in scripture and they will be. And frankly, that gives me comfort because if you, if you stretch that out and you start thinking about if you could explain everything there is to know about God and all of those things, and this is what, this is why atheism touch point touching on that a bit, atheism and agnostic. I struggle with these terms because when I hear someone say that they're an atheist, I have two thoughts in my brain. One, you're being intellectually dishonest. Or two, and or two, you're mad at God. And I'll explain why I say that. Because atheism literally means there is no God. There, there is no possibility of a God. Atheist. They, they, they believe in nothing, but there is no God. Like, never has been a God. Never was a God. Never will be a God. What you see here is what you have here. Mm. Now, if you just examine that just from a lot, just, just, we don't even have to be spiritual about it. Let's just talk about it from a logical sense. If someone is saying there is, I would love to ask the question, explain to me quantum physics. Talk to me about the qubits and how qubits have same state in separate places, but are strangely affected by one another over space and time. Explain that to me. No, you can't. Yeah. Well, then how, then how in the world can you say that there is no God? Like you, right. you don't have the sum total of the universe and all of its knowledge and libraries in your brain, Mr. Atheist. So like the term atheist is usually something that's intellectually dishonest or they are mad at God. And that's that's an okay place to be. You can sure. be mad at God. You just begin but, there. Say there is a God, right? So anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I'm I was just going to say absolutely. That that would be the starting point. You know, if you get to that realization of of I'm mad at God, or or I'm, you know, listening to this, and you're, you know, something inside of you from what you just said is like, wow, that that's pretty true. Like I am kind of mad at God, like just, okay, start there. And that's okay. It's okay to be mad at God. There's plenty of people in the Bible who got mad at God, like it, and it's okay. Um, you know, God is not this just authoritarian figure that, that is just going to pummel you to death for, for questioning him. Um, you know, he, 
he's someone who's described as being able to be reasoned with, um, you know, going to destroy cities and and somebody comes to him and is like, but what if there's, you know, what if there's but one, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and he's reasoned with, and he's, he's, you know, it's said in the scripture that he repented, God repented, Mm -hmm. you know, he turned away. That's what that word means. Uh, so a couple, I, I did jot down a couple of notes uh, as you were talking, and that was an amazing, amazing intro. I, I, I loved every second of that. Um, so for for the, just to kind of tease our Church of Christ uh, members out there, was this was the thief on the cross next to Jesus because he was not immersed and thus baptized? Um, was he not? in paradise with Jesus um you know did he not get saved that that kind of thing uh that that's a little thought to chew on um so i'm going to jump way back in in your in your uh in your intro you were talking about you know that 6 7 8 year old time frame how you had this conviction but not in a spiritual way um where you you knew kind of a right from wrong in a in a way um but it didn't you said it didn't come from a spiritual way so would would you say that we at least from your experience have an imprint like a natural imprint of natural morality um and and where would you say you know from your beliefs where would you say that that natural morality if so, would come from. Yeah. So yeah, um, for sure. Uh, I, on a personal level, um, I, I guess back then when I say it wasn't a spiritual thing, uh, you're exactly right. There's an imprint of morality upon mankind. Every, every person has some sort of imprint of this. And, um, there are scriptural uh, places you can look. Romans one is a good place to kind of read about the natural, uh, the natural world and order, and everyone is without excuse because God has shown it in creation, right? And so, Rome, in fact, Romans one's Romans one, by the way, is a um, is a passage that in today's culture can, if you stand on the street corner and and just read Romans one, you can be arrested uh, because there are um, there are passages that are considered hate speech in Romans one, um, in today's culture. Um, Praise so the I, Lord. Would, <laughs> I would say that, that, uh, to, to the one case, the second case about like, just, just from a logical perspective. Um, and I'll just tell us a little story here, uh, to kind of talk about this. I, I had a coworker of mine, uh, and I think I relayed this story to you at, uh, at a different time. He was, uh, he, he's Hindi. And, uh, so he, uh, we, we were talking right after nine 11, I was uh, one year, two years. Uh, yeah. About a year into my faith at that time. And so I was working at a defense contractor and, and, uh, most of my coworkers had been, um, they were traveling and of course everything after nine 11 locked down. So the flights, everything was ground stop. So they're like scrambling, trying to get cars and stuff. So as a result, there was a lot of downtime in, uh, at the job place. So I, was, I mean, I had hours to talk to this guy and, um, and he was so mad at uh, at the assault of, you know, um, the American bastion of freedom and these things. And 
And uh, I was asking him, why are you so like, this guy's like not originally from the U S and so, you know, why is it that you're mad? And he's, he's from India. Right. So, um, and he, he was really displayed a lot of hatred towards Muslims and, and I didn't realize this at the time, but like in India and Pakistan in that area, the Muslims and Hindu, uh, Hindi people, um, or Hindu people, um, from a religious perspective, they hate each other, like vehemently hate each other. And so, um, so anyway, he, he was just, I mean, just talking about Muslim, this and that and the other. And so I just started talking to him about morality and things like that. And he was, he was like, ah, you know, everything's relative and this and that relative morality and stuff. And, and I'd heard this before, you know, and, and, but it's, it's like nailing jello to the wall. Whenever you start talking to somebody about moral relativism and things like that, postmodern kind of culture, it's, it literally is like nailing jello to the wall. And at the time I, I thought I was like, you know, trying to defend my faith, trying to share about Christ and all these other things. And, and, uh, and and I finally got to the place where I'm like, it, it, to, to him, morality was all relative. And, and I asked him, I said, so if you go on a business trip and you're married, so if you go on a business trip, do you just, you know, go out on the street and bring a hooker into your hotel room and have your way with her? Oh no, never. I'm like, but if your wife isn't never going to find out about it and if, you know, there's no, you know, um, what do you call it? Punishment. No, no one's going to find out in any kind of way. What in you keeps you from doing that? Well, it will hurt her. What do you mean? It'll hurt her. How will it hurt her? Well, I can't mm. offend her in that way. I'm like, do you realize what you're saying now? You're saying that right. you have a sense of morality a sense of right and wrong that's in you. That's not moral relativism. It's not, it's not relatively right and wrong. If you don't hurt it, like I can do this if I don't hurt anyone, there's a, there's an imprint in you. And I realized, you know, in that conversation, I mean, God was showing me like the things I was learning in scripture. God was showing me like in, in real life as I'm, as I'm talking to people like this, that God has planted like the divine nature in you. Now, I'm not saying divine nature, you are God and we are gods. I'm saying that we are um, the imprint, the imprint of God, the amage deo, the imprint of God, the image of God is in, in, implanted on the souls of men. So we are without excuse. We have the morality and the sense of right and wrong. Romans one is clear about that. Our own experience is clear about that. You don't even have to go to scripture with that. You can think through uh, our own and, and you can think about people who don't even have um, uh, any someone who is vehemently against God in many ways has a sense of right and wrong. Um, mm -hmm. Whether they admit it or not, it's there. So anyway, I don't know if that helps answer some of that. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, I've heard a lot of the, you know, atheist or agnostic people, people who shun, you know, religion or faith, things like that, um, just as a structure in and of itself, regardless of Christian or, or, or whatever, or even denominations, they'll say that, well, the, the morality that, that I experience is a cultural thing. That's a, that's a product of the culture that I was raised in or, or, um, you know, things like that. But, um, you know, the, real quick, like, before like you, you said, 
Before you go on, go I, I do want to touch on the agnostic label as well, because this is what I was before. I, I would say as an adult, like looking back, I would, and it's only through hindsight of clear eyes from several years and maybe even decades later that I look back and say, oh, okay, this is what, where I was going through at the time. Like at the time, like I, I would have said I was a Christian and all of these other things, but um, oh, do I need to get baptized? All these other things. But Looking back, I know without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, I was an agnostic, and an agnostic is different than an atheist, and an, ag and an agnostic is much more intellectually honest with themselves and others. Agnostic truly means you can't know if there is a God. That's what that means, uh, rather than saying a, an edict and a decree from on high, there is no God. That's atheist. But agnostic is you can't know that gnosis that is that word that means truth, right? So that you can't know the the truth. So um, so anyway, I just wanted to highlight that there is a difference with those two. And if someone says they're an agnostic atheist, for example, I, I, like I don't know what to deal with that. That that, that yeah. that's that's like that's like saying I'm a you know I'm a poodle dolphin. Yeah, like yeah. There's no poodle dolphin. You're either a poodle or a dolphin. There's not a there's not a dolphin that's poodle like. You know, there's not no, right. there's not a thing like that. So, so like these words are but both important. are mammals, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. anyway, no, I yeah, that's that that's one thing that I have come across, um, and, and I think that that goes into the whole relativism, the almost like this postmodern. Uh, this idea of things are defined how I say they're defined. Yeah. Uh, perception is reality, that sort of thing. Well, you know, I, I'm defining agnostic. This, like, no, that's that's not how words work in a civilized society. Like, the what the way that we communicate is based upon an agreement of. 99.9% .9 repeating people who say this word means this thing. And if we start changing these things around, well, then that gets you down all these different rabbit holes of gender of fluidity, fluidity of, well, I feel this way. So therefore I am like, no, um, every cell in your body declares otherwise um that that sort of thing uh so yeah um not gonna get too deep into that on this one uh but it is interesting it so were you you so you were, you said that you were not you wouldn't say that you were an atheist prior to to that um 10 to the minus 43 second you 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 think you were probably pretty oh, agnostic was... before then I was an agnostic up until the point where, and, and and a lot of people know exactly when the date and time is. To me, there was about a nine month window from the time that I had in 1999 when I went to that play, and I had this reflection of why am I defending Jesus? Like, mm. why is there a righteous indignation that is welling up within me? And then the Holy Spirit impressing upon me that is you, my friend. That is you. Mm. Um, there was a nine month journey at that point. Like, am, am I, do I need to get 
baptized again. I'm in the wrong denomination. What's the, and we started actually trying to go to church and all that. In fact, the first time we went to church was with you and you were two years old. They're about a toddler. And, uh, you threw up over everything and, uh, <laughs> you know, in the, in the, in the foyer. And it was, it yeah. was like, I was like, even trying, trying to go to church, like, you know, and all the things arrayed against us, you know, but trying to do that. And, um, and so there was a nine month window and then me getting, I remember getting on my face with tears, like with a full realization of my absolute stench in the nostrils of God. Um, and, and, and that, and so I would say that's a journey that went from 99 to 2000 January. And then that astronomy class was actually spring semester 2000. So that was, I was a very, very young believer at the time when I got down to the 10 to the minus 43 and, you know, in in May Uh, of 2000. So anyway, so so that was hence the, the, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Say yes, it. Exactly. Say God. Say, say it. Say it. Yeah. Say it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It. It. You know, uh, my the way my brain works, and you know this because we've talked before. But the the way my brain works is I'm I'm picturing the this scientist just seeking to know God's creation, whether he wants to admit that it's God God's creation or not. He's seeking to know God through his creation. Um, it, even in the most secular way. And, and he walks up to the door that God is standing behind. Uh, you know, he gets down to 10 to the minus 43 seconds and he puts his hand on that doorknob and he says, no. And he turns and walks away. And in my mind, you know, I, I, I'm hearing you tell that story mm-hmm. and I'm like, man, that, and, and that goes into the what did what did you call it the pre pre something grace Preveni- the pre- prevenient grace prevenient, prevenient grace. grace um yeah and the, i would also say that that door on the on that door that you're saying that he's going up to that door has all of newton's laws all of einstein's mm. theory of relativity all of the science that we know matter can neither be created nor destroyed it cannot be that's a physical law uh, that we know, and it's labeled with all of that, and yet he won't, still won't open that door to see what, how does this happen, uh, without breaking the laws of physics? You know, and here's a phys- phys- uh, uh, physicist that like literally. So anyway, I would just, I would, I would say there's markers all over that door that he walked up to. That yeah. He refused yeah, to go signs through. signs posted. Yeah. Posted on the way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but, and but why someone to get satisfied with that? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that, I think that the problem is we, we're coming from it. We're, we're coming to this issue knowing and wanting or being willing to admit that's that the key. God is that's, on the other side. That's the key. That is, and and that's the that's the push pull of, well, did did I choose Christ, or did Christ choose me? Hmm. Yes. Yes. That's the push pull. That that's exactly hmm. the push pull. And I remember a quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon said that he goes, "I came to Christ like all men do, choosing Him." And it's only on the other side of that choice that I realized that God was pulling me, kicking and screaming towards him. And so it's like yeah. this, this idea of, of, um, 
of, and this is, you'll recall it from the doctrines of grace. So provenient grace is not a part of the doctrines of grace, but the doctrines of grace uh, would call this unconditional election, this idea of, of this predetermined election, this choice of God. And this is where it gets real hinky with a lot of even Christians, right? Like this is, this is something that gives me like, even in my man-centered ways, I'm thinking to myself, this kind of feels unfair, you know, if that, if that mean, if that means anything. So anyway. Are you talking about the predestination versus free will conversation? That that sort of thing. So it, and and it's a hard one. That's a hard one. It separated the church for millennia. So. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know, please correct me if, if I'm, you know, biblically inaccurate with, with this thought process, but in my mind, the way that I, again, visualize it is it's almost like, um, it's a yes. And it's a free will and predestination sort of deal in that through God's omnipotence, he knows who will choose. Um, and in that way, you know, all the passages that lend it themselves toward being evidence for predestination Mm. are true. And also God gives us the free will that was displayed in Genesis one, where Adam and Eve chose to disown, like you, you had one job, one job. Yeah. And, and you chose to disobey. Mm -hmm. Um, and man, (laughs) just sidebar being a parent that just the choosing of disobedience, it, it's just so frustrating. And, and, you know, how much more like <laughs> putting yourself in God's shoes. Right. So, but anyway, um, so I, I've got God, two things. I got two places we can go with this, but it's going to be a choose your own adventure. One, we can dig in on the, what you said about the foreknowledge aspect of God on the second, we can talk about the necessity of the divinity of Christ so, because yeah, so you, let, you, you spoke on both things just then. So I wanted to, or let me I'll lead into both things. Yeah, let me let me let me wrap and then I'll I'll we can talk about I'd I'd love to get into the divinity the divinity of Christ. So the but the the thought process mm-hmm. is like God in in the Bible there are many instances where God is spoken as to uh softening and hardening people's hearts mm-hmm. uh, in in different situations, different points in their lives. And I think that this, especially the the idea of the softening of the heart, and it's almost like God is breathing this breath of life across your nostrils. You're mm-hmm. you're a dead man in your sin, yet He's breathing just this wind, right? And and in that moment, you have this gasp of, and that that right there is is the moment where you have the free will yet it is an initiation you, you know it's initiated by god where he's breathing this breath of life across you mm-hmm. drawing you to him and and you can either choose to rise pick up your cross and follow him mm-hmm. or you can choose to breathe that back out fall back into your grave and 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 continue just ops normal, you know, Mm -hmm. um, continue as you were. So I don't know. I don't know if that's at all like, uh, 
talked about or because uh, it oh it's I, talked I feel about like, in the scripture for sure you well, yeah but I, I mean like in church circles because i feel like you get these camps of like well it is free will or it is predestination yeah. it's like i mean it you so don't the, so, ha- a the, you don't have to be so sure and b it says both, right? So there's evidence for both. The The sermon and the message is the same. Repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. That literally is the message. Um, the way we slice and dice it, how many times, you know, when you were a baby and you were born, did you have any choice in the matter? Um, right. You, you know, like like there there there's a lot of things that you could talk about, but literally the message, the the sermon is the same repent and believe the gospel. Um, and belief is very tightly connected to breathing. So that, that's a, that is an illustration and a metaphor that is all through scripture. John three, when he says, you must be born again, uh, as the wind blows as a new moss, new moss is the Greek word as a new moss blows, right? Um, why did Jesus choose to say new moss to Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, the, the, the very highest level Jew. Well, he's giving him Ezekiel 36 and 37 is what he's giving him. And Ezekiel 36 and 37, you got the Valley of the Dry Bones and you got Ezekiel standing in the dry, Valley of the Dry Bones and, and God is speaking to Ezekiel in this vision. He says, what do you see? I see a bunch of dead bones. I see a bunch of dead things, right? He goes, well, uh, you know, tell them to get up, you know, <laughs> bone came to bone, sinew came to sinew, yet they had no life. Hmm. And, and so in that scripture, God tells Ezekiel, say to the four winds to breathe on these bones. This is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus in John three, when he says, you must be born again, born from above as the wind blows there is a there is a mysterious thing with that and um but it's very biblical ephesians 2 talks about death and it and and paul uses that metaphor and he says you were dead and yet christ made you live verses 8 and 9 of of uh, ephesians and so this this idea like i remember seeing a a, a metaphor of this you you have either the viewpoint of like, you're so sick and you know, whatever. And then the Holy spirit just kind of like wishes you to get up and you're like, ah, okay. Or you're just dead, like literally dead, like Lazarus in the grave. Like can't, like you're not breathing stinky, like decomposing dead. And God yet raised you. Which one makes God more powerful? And I learned this a long time ago that when you start thinking of theology, is it this or is it that, or is it the other thing? A good barometer like that has never failed me at all in my life is which of the positions make God out to be even more holy, exalted, and glorious than I previously thought. Which one of these positions make man the center of the action or God the center of the action? And you can usually you can usually land in the right way when you start thinking along those lines because that reframes your brain right just be more god-centered on that so anyway i don't remember the question but but anyway no we're we're just we're just uh riffing riffing we're riffing riffing let me touch uh, on the divinity of christ real quick if you don't mind all right so you mentioned 
Adam and Eve in, in, in Eden, right? And so we, we talked about this earlier in the conversation, the fig leaves and all of this, and then the blood sacrifice, the flesh that, that had to be killed to, to make the, and this illustration and foreshadowing of, of only blood sacrifice is, um, is sufficient to satisfy God. It, and this is from the Jews, Yom Kippur and, and the, um, you know, the, um, the Passover and all of the things, the blood, and it's just so imagery all over the place. But if you think about that and you think about Jesus and how some would say Jesus is a good teacher, um, right? And there are cults and, and usually the, one of the signs of a cult is going to be attacking the deity of Christ or the divinity of Christ and saying he's something less than God. Um, some would say that he's the brother of uh, of Satan, for example, that's what some of the Christian cults uh, believe. Other Christian cults believe that he is uh, the Michael, uh, Michael, the angel in incarnate form. Um, and uh, yeah, others believe that he was uh, a man in a different place, but God of this world. And so as we are men of this place, we shall be gods of another world. You know, all of these other kind of strange things. But um, if you think about the sacrifice on the cross, and you think about the need to rectify the curse in the garden. Um, the imprint of sin is in the very nature of our DNA. It's not just that I sinned as an action. It's that I am sin. That is important theologically to understand. I am sin in my very DNA. So not only I am sin, but I do sin. So like most Christians stop at the I do sin part and they get that right. <laughs> but, but you are sin uh, because it's in your very nature as a human. So you're created in the image of God, but yet you are sin because that blood flow came down from Adam and Eve down through our blood. So when you start thinking about the virginity of Mary, um, Mary being a virgin is important theologically speaking, because the 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 bloodline from Adam didn't flow through a father, an earthly father, to make the seed of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was the seed that that was implanted in Mary. It had to be a virgin that was born or that that uh that jesus was born from it had to be otherwise the sin of adam would have come through the father's line and been implanted there so so there's a, a virgin birth and the fact that he did die on a cross there's historical references to this there's extra biblical that's not even you know in i'm not even referencing scripture there's extra biblical evidence of him um of him dying in a, a, a crucifixion so when you think about the the blood sacrifice that was made on our behalf, what less than God's blood can suffice to overturn the very nature of sin within us? What less than God's blood can conquer death? Remember, death was a part of the curse. So what less than God's blood could do that? Nothing. This is the proof of Jesus's divinity to me. Like this is the proof. Jesus had to be God 
to conquer death. He had to be God to reverse the sin curse upon man. And so every drop of that blood that was, that was spilt was intended for uh, those who would come to him. I mean, it's, it mm. says that very plainly. So, um, so anyway, that, that's my spiel on the divinity of Christ. But I would say there is the theological term is hypostatic union, the man and divinity side of him being 100% of both. And there will be people that say, well, that's impossible. That's 200%. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. He is man, and yet he is God. Mm. And that, that, is, uh, that is the um, orthodox Christian view, not orthodox Catholic, orthodox schism. Generally speaking, orthodox Christianity does not deny the divinity of Christ. And, um, and I'll stand on that. that. That's a thing that like, I can, I can, I can go one way or the other on gifts of the spirit or even predestination or even young earth, old earth, things like that. But like Jesus had to be God. And if you play a little game with me and think, what if Jesus wasn't God? We are still in our sin. Hmm. We are still in our sin if Jesus was not God and is not God. Right. So, anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, the, uh, I pulled up a, a few references that, that you kind of alluded to. Tacitus's uh, Annals, Flavius Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, the Talmud, and even uh, other early Christian writings you know, giving credence to Jesus's, uh, time here on this earth. These are extra canonical sources, um, that you can, you can look into. And also even, you know, it's funny cause the skeptic will, will ask and say, well, why aren't there, you know, these, these hard and fast, you know, where the, all the books that, that talk about Jesus, uh, you know, his life, death and resurrection, um, besides the Bible, well, a, here are a few. And then B, <laughs> if they go into great detail, um, why would they not be canon? Like why, why would that not make it into the canonical Bible that we have today? Because there are four distinct books uh, that are in the Bible. And, and again, for the viewers out there, listeners, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like these are, these are books, accounts written Mm -hmm. by, by men of, of Jesus's life here on this earth. And they wrote them down. Um, and they're, they're not exhaustive lists. I think it was, um, I think it was in John where he says, you know, it, I, I would fill the entire earth if I were to write down everything that Jesus mm-hmm. did. Like this is by no means everything, every aspect. This isn't like a camcorder or CCTV mm-hmm. uh, picture of Jesus's life. These are the important things that these dudes that were following this guy around, they were like, well, that was pretty wild. And they, you know, took note of it you know, that, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, and then going into the uh, something you touched on uh, way back earlier that I, I just want to uh, you know kind of talk about give praise, some praise to God about 
um, the redemptive power of Christ. Mm-hmm. Like y- you are never too far gone. Right. Um, like even some biblical references, uh, like people in the Bible mm-hmm. who were like the worst of the worst yep. came to be the best of the best. Paul, the apostle, like he, he, mm-hmm. he was a persecutor of the Jews of, of which Jesus was like he, Jesus was a Jew, uh, when he was living on this earth, Mary Magdalene. I mean, he, uh, she was often associated with a past involving demon possession or sinful behavior. Like, but she was in, in Jesus's kind of inner circle, mm-hmm. um, at least toward the end. And then the prodigal son, uh, mm-hmm. in the, uh, referenced in the new Testament. Uh, but I believe, wasn't he in the old? No. Maybe it's just a New Testament thing, but but this this idea of going wayward mm-hmm. and yet yet you know coming back and uh, what's so interesting, yeah. What's interesting, yeah. What's interesting about all of that to me is that you're right. I mean, the scriptures, the the canon as we know it, we have this New Testament that was written, as you said. But one of the things I would highlight is all of the things that you said. These men, fishermen, tax collectors, and things that were made up the motley crew of the disciples of, of Jesus, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to instruct them to go and follow this rabbi, this carpenter. Um, right. There was something about him, that something about God that drew them to, to Jesus. And, and I would suggest, and, I, and I've actually uh, I've, I've met someone in the past that— um, uh, is a messianic Jew, and they say that in Israel, even to this day, they will not read Isaiah fifty-three, for example, in the synagogue. Um, wow. That is not something that they can or will read in the synagogue. And I don't know if that's extra, like uh, I don't, I don't know if that's a hearsay thing or whatever. But Isaiah fifty-three is so. Um, accurately describing this historical Jesus person about how he died, about all of the things and illustrations around that, that I'm, I'm convinced, frankly, that you don't even need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or the New Testament. All you need is the Old Testament. And that points to Christ. That points mm-hmm. to Christ because that's all the disciples had. If you think about that, there's 400 and what, 83 years between the Old Testament, and New Testament. So there was silence between uh, Old Testament, and New Testament before these things were written 400 and some years. And I mean, like you were talking about not being so far gone. Remember Jonah? I mean, go preach to Nineveh. Nah, it's all right. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but, you know, why did Jonah, why did Jonah like not want to do it? Because he figured that God was going to like be merciful and like save the Ninevites, and like here's the people that like were worshiping other gods and all these other things, and so you got this history of redemption all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. So like, I would encourage people who have questions about the canon and things like that, certainly have your questions. Um, those are good and right questions, which by which translation of the Bible is the right one. And all these are all important things to, to, to get. Yeah. But I would suggest that you study that with an open heart and not with a heart of skepticism. Right. Because understand these disciples were fishermen and lay people that had no internet, but something, 
had no Snapchat or Instagram, but like left their nets and followed him. They something they left so their radical. Nets, they left their families and livelihood to follow this man. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, Absolutely. So they didn't have the the answers like where's the right scroll and is it written in the right pen? And you know, like that's what that would sound like to these ears from back then. And um so those might be good good questions, but like understand, like research them with an open heart, not with a skeptical like looking for a corner or something like because you you had a question to me in the lead up of this thing. You said, How would you answer a skeptic or a critic or something like that? And and I, I'll be honest with you, I would probably say with compassion, because like if someone's already skeptical or critical about this, they're already coming to God in a in a way that is looking for an out. And you know, I don't know. It's uh it's hard to reach through some of the culture that we have today to have someone think deeply about what humankind looked like before the internet and everything else and like stop everything and just think deeply about how you got here. How are the stars out at night? Why is it that you have emotion? Why is it that you have righteous indignation? Why is it that you have a sense of justice? Why is it that you have a sense of mercy? You know, um, conversely, why is it that you have a sense of judgmentalness, criticalness? You know, those are, those are deep questions that like are inward focus that must be dealt with before you realize that you're a stench before God. I'm a stench before God. Uh, that's how my sin was, and frankly is still. Um, you know, just because one is redeemed, uh, one knows Christ or whatever, doesn't mean someone's perfect. So, anyway, yeah, I, I, I had a conversation with uh, my wife uh, several days ago about about that. Is is it's not, you know, as a Christian, you're you're told. This is an impossible task. You mm -hmm. all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And it's not this magic flipping of a switch where I said I'm a Christian now, I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like such a cop-out, right? But it it's one of those things where you, it's it's this realization of I have fallen short. Mm -hmm. I can't do this on my own. And I need Jesus's redeeming qualities to wash over me mm -hmm. and and make me better. Like mm. it, the desire it, to repent and believe, like that is that is step one, right? You you that that well, really, that's the whole deal, right? That that's the whole deal is yeah. you turn. And you look to Christ. Yeah, it's a look. And, and that it is literally that, a look. That's what the, you, you mentioned the thief on the cross earlier, right? It literally was a look. In the in the different accounts of, of Calvary, it talks about like all of the like the people that were with Jesus, that the ones that were with Jesus on the cross that were like also like on a cross. 
they were speaking against him. But there was one, there was one that looked to Christ. And that look is all that it took. And that, that's, that's an amazing thing. And there, there's, a, there's a concept here, and I think it's in John 5. He says, um, um, you search the scriptures to find eternal life, and these things testify of me, but you will not come to me. Mm. That's a powerful thing because this is not a system of beliefs. It's not, a, it's not like, oh, I must believe this and I'm saved, or oh, I must de- decree this or confess that or pray this prayer or be. There is, a, there is a seeking of Jesus. Like he is the one who saves, not the belief. And so there's a, it's a subtle semantic. Some would say it's semantics, but there's a subtlety there that's so very important. And once one does repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, they begin to see that it is Jesus. I remember there was a, uh, a sermon I, I heard a long time ago, and he said, if you can get to a place in your, in your walk where you, you die and for some reason you, you get to heaven or whatever and, 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 and Jesus is there, and, um, and somehow like, like you didn't pray the right prayer or you didn't believe the right thing or whatever, and, and maybe Jesus made a mistake or whatever the case may be, and Jesus looks at you and says, yeah, so you're going to hell because that's, that's where you need to be. And when you can get to the place in your life where you're like, you're exactly right. That's exactly where I need to be. That's what I deserve. I, that's exactly where I need to be. When, when you get to the place of like complete ownership of not only the sin nature, but the, the acts and, and uh, of omission and commission of, of sin, and you, and you realize that Jesus died for you. Um, and, and that blood that was spilt, it was not because he just like wanted to just go and like had some sadistic desire for pain. Like, you know, there, there is a reason that he went to the cross, um, like literally. And so like, there's a personal aspect of that. Um, and so that's why there's a, there's a very, um, deep meaning in that passage where, where, as I mentioned before, he says, you search the script. He's talking to the people of the book. You search the scriptures for eternal life. You search the scriptures for eternal life. These things testify of me. What scriptures was he talking about? The Old Testament. That's what he was talking Mm -hmm. about. These scriptures in the Old Testament, the Isaiah 53, that no one wants to say out loud today anymore, that those kinds of things. The, the the killing of women and children, whole civilizations of of people that God commanded Israelites. That same scripture, that these things testify of me. What what can we learn of that with Jesus? That he's holy, that he is God, and he's not to be trifled with. Like, I mean, they're very simple things, right? But like these things testify yeah. me, and you will not come to me, therefore. Uh, you're lost in your sin, right? So, I mean, it's, there's a, there's a power in that, that is unexplainable and not a formula. And frankly, I'm so happy that it is, it's that way. Um, Hmm. My analytical mind says that I want it to be formulaic, but frankly, my brain is so finite 
and so um, degraded now that I'm gotten older. And I'm so glad that I'm not like um, um, my hope is not in my intellect. My hope is in a person, and his name is Jesus. And that that that's my testimony, right? So like that that's the that's the best way you can walk out of this world is being able to say that. So anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, t- you, you mentioned, um, you know, that, that scenario of getting, you know, you die, you see Jesus on his throne and he says, depart from me mm-hmm. for I never knew you, mm-hmm. you know, but the, the passage out of Matthew and you say, yes, that's exactly what I deserve. Um, that sounds like super unfair to, Hmm. to a passive listener, like, like, okay, well, screw, screw this whole conversation. I'm turning the podcast off, right? Like I'm, I'm just done. I gave Christianity another chance. I'm done. But the way that I like to think about this is let me describe to you, you know, this is a hypothetical, but let me describe to you my relationship with my wife. I love my wife so much that I don't let her talk to anyone else. I don't let her have any friends. I don't let her, you know, even communicate, even think she has to just stare at me all day long and worship me because I love her. Right. And and it's because I love her that I make her live this life totally devoted without any choice in the matter. Well, now the passive listener hears that and says, well, that's not a loving relationship. That's an abusive relationship. That's a very unhealthy relationship. Yet when we put these labels on it of God and his creation, like we are this, your whole plane of existence is God's canvas where he's he has yep. painted you who are you mm-hmm. to look at god and say why did you draw me this way who are you to look at god and and question his motives mm-hmm. and so it it is it is because god loves you <laughs> that yeah. you can look at him spit in his face and walk away and he doesn't just immediately smite you into mm-hmm. a pillar of salt like it, that that is love that mm-hmm. is mercy it and that you know w- when you can really grasp that it like i'm getting chills right now just just thinking about how powerful that message is of of you have this almighty being who who knew you before the foundations of this world everything humanity has Mm. ever known he knew you and yet you spit in his face and walk away and Mm. and so um you know that that you said something interesting that'll preach yeah that will uh you said something interesting about canvas and whatnot and it touches on his creation aspect of things and um there's a there's a thing i listened to recently and he's talked about fiat lux let there be light um out of genesis the the divine uh let there be the fiat lux and um we have such a privilege in being creators in a lesser way 
as as mankind paintings and artistry and things like that that we make music and we make beautiful things um you know there there's all of that points to a creator all of it does um and so like that let there be that fiat um when god creates and says let there be light fiat lux when we say fiat something else and go against the creation um that's where things exist today culturally and uh we could probably take that somewhere and that may be another that may be another oh, that, um we can do it well uh, well the, the, it, the it's thought the process, whole yeah the thought process was in in genesis where he says fiat lux and he says let there be light and and then it, when he created man and he created woman it's just let let it be man and woman um and and it's in the image uh, of God, right? And the, this this creation, right? When we when we in our enlightened age somehow think that we um, know best and are enlightened and say something other than that, um, mm. we're putting ourselves in the place of God. Uh, when we do that, we may not know that that's what we're doing, but we really are. We're putting ourselves in the place of God when we when we go against this creation in ways like that. I, I'll just when we declare, yeah, yeah. When we declare God has made a mistake, I am not um, fashioned correctly. And, yeah, you know. And and I need to be changed. And, and and I would say that in in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, like certainly mm. someone would hear what you just said, and they would say, "Oh, wait a minute. What about someone who has a birth defect or something like this?" And certainly, I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking mm. about like at the DNA level, you know, God making something. Um, God has given us uh, the ability, medically, uh, science-wise, everything else to to overcome certain things in life to, to, you know, and, and it's been quite frankly, amazing. Um, mm. what, what mankind has been able to discover and invent and be able to actually overcome from an illness perspective, et cetera. But I'm talking about the very DNA, like, like God has somehow made me somebody that I'm not supposed to be. Mm. Um, that that's where we start putting ourselves into God's place. Yeah, so. it's a complete usurpation of Genesis yeah. one. It is. Yeah. It is a the fiat. It, it is a the person, a fiat. Yeah. I, I will now declare. Yes, like exactly. You you exactly. pump the brakes. You made a mistake. I'm yes. in charge now. I right. I am the captain now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, and then one one thing you mentioned was. Uh, how God is bigger than than people like to admit uh, or people are comfortable with. Because, I mean, uh, I, I like answers. I like having the answer. Mm, I like sure. knowing, you know, mm -hmm. well, I'm curious. Let's, let's figure that out. Like, it's that analytical mind, right? But um, with, with faith in, in Christ, you said that there has to be things that you will not have answers to 
Otherwise, how is that any bigger than you as right. a person? Exactly. Exactly. Um, it, it, it's like it's like how generation millennia before us have read these things or or experienced creation because the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. They so they've experienced Yahweh in some form or fashion, and yet. No one. We stand here today in 2023. We stand on the shoulders of millennia of people coming before us, and their revelations, uh, you know, through through creation or scripture or whatever the case may be. Um, we have the the summation of all of their their theories about God and creation and, the, and and all these things and yet we here today still don't have the answers and i would i would say propose that that until we are standing before God we <laughs> you cannot know uh, and and maybe even then maybe even you know when when we are in his presence mm-hmm. for eternity we may still not know. Um, and and I, I do think I, that stuck out to me uh, as mm. something that you said that I really appreciated because that, uh, knowing that, okay, I, I won't get all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like, it's almost like um, being, being really into like working on cars Right. And and so there's this very mathematical precision sort of deal. And then you listen to a jazz track uh, through through your um, earbuds or whatever. And, and you're trying to apply the logic and the math. Of, you know, all of your mechanical skills to this art piece hmm. that when you when you hear jazz there there isn't a formula there isn't one set of like these are the keys thou shall play mm. when playing jazz sort of thing like that's that mm. is that that's why it's called jazz right mm. that, that's that's what the thing is yet when we i would i would say that when you come to faith and things about faith with okay well i'm going to approach this by seeking every logical conclusion um there's an answer for everything i'm going to search the depths of like 10 to the minus 43 that well you know god wasn't revealed there so therefore god doesn't exist that sort of thing like you're you're approaching this whole thing with the wrong mindset that's right trying to think about jazz by looking at a carburetor. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it's just a, a completely wrong mental framework. Yeah. So, and I could, I could put it from my perspective. Um, yeah, I'm software engineer, um, several decades in, in my, I'm not the best in the world at, by any stretch of the imagination, but I will say there is a certain level of, um, there, there's a, the Buddhists would say Zen quality. There's a certain flow. Others would say flow. There's a certain level of like pride or in a, in a good way. When you build something that is beautiful. And so 
me from a software engineering perspective, I suck at anything like front end UI or whatever. I'm just talking about like the way that code gets put together and stitched together and built and designed, uh, the way that test cases are built and things like that. There's a certain craftsmanship in that that is creative, um, shall we say. And um, to, so I'm going back to what you were saying about like, how do you do jazz when you're doing the carburetor? Well, how do you teach that? Like, how do you, how do you teach that artistic aspect of um, of creativity to someone um, like doing a normal software engineer? I, you know, I only came across that just by working with it and working with it and working with it and realizing that there is a certain craftsmanship um, to use that word that comes with that. So I, I can I can totally see where you're going with that the jazz and connecting the jazz to the to the working on the engine, right? So um, anyway, yeah. yeah, well, I, uh, I think I've kept you for quite a while. I think it's time to wind down. Is there any sort of, uh, resources that, that you would point someone who is, uh, questioning their faith, deconstructing, um, hmm. um, I would say, you know, from the scriptures, um, the book of John is always a good one to start with. Um, uh, Lee Strobel also had uh, some some books that were formative for me. The Case for Christ. Um, I think there's a there's a few of those out there. There's apologetics works um, as well that that are out there. Numerous. Um, if someone's into um, cult areas, there are there are also um, plenty of resources like Walter Martin and things like that that actually kind of throw you know throw some light onto some of those beliefs and whatnot um a lot of my journey has gone through systematic theology so wayne grudem's got an awesome it's it's a big tome but um there there are sections in there like for example baptism right so like different christian denominations believe different things about baptism right baptists typically believe in immersion and a credo baptist faith um, Catholics will believe in a, uh, um, a sacrament of baptism, a, a grace giving. Um, however, like Presbyterians and PCA believe in infant baptism, pedo baptism, but they believe it as a, um, covenantal view. So, um, so a PCA person who has a, a, a infant baptism is very different in meaning than a Catholic having an infant baptism. So I, I didn't even know that until I'd gone through like the little chapter in systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. So uh, there, there are plenty of resources. Um, I would say the internet is there, but like there's going to be, you're going to see everything uh, there too. So I don't know if that helps, if any of that helps, but. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, dad, I appreciate your time. And yeah. uh, maybe we could do this again sometime. All right, take care, man.